Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Welcome to Memphis Metropolis, everybody. I'm Emily Trenum, and this week I'm pleased to kick off a new series called Neighborhood Spotlights. I'm going to be having guests from different neighborhoods you might not know about around Memphis. We're going to talk about the neighborhood, the people that live there, and then some of the initiatives that are happening at the neighborhood level. So this is our first one, and I'm Delighted to welcome Jared Myers, who is Executive Director of the Heights CDC. We're going to be talking about a neighborhood called the Heights today. You probably figured that out. And then in the second half of the show, Ray Brown, who's a local urban designer and a regular commentator, will be joining me for discussion. So welcome, Jared. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. Uh, Excited to be a part of the conversation today and share about my neighborhood, where I live, and, and the work we're doing. So, yeah, so let's just start from the beginning, Jared. Where is the Heights? So um, the Heights neighborhoods, there's there's multiple, right? And then we've kind of looped them together as one area of Memphis north of Summer Avenue. And that includes Highland Heights, which most people may be familiar with, the name Mitchell Heights, Graham Heights, and Brinkley Heights. So they're, um, you know, geographically located north of Summer Avenue, kind of the heart of the city, north of Binghampton. Uh, just um, west of Berkeley, um and very adjacent to Nutbush and other areas. So very loosely defined areas, um, neighborhood boundaries uh, for us. Our organization, the Heights Community Development Corporation, that serves all of those Heights communities, uh, we have our uh, boundaries of Summer Avenue to Jackson to the north, and then Graham to the east and Scott Street to the west. So before we talk about Heights CDC, let's talk a little bit more about the Heights neighborhood. So what are what are um, some interesting you know demographics about the neighborhood? Who lives there, and um, what's the neighborhood like? Yes, I, I mean I've been fortunate enough. I'm a native Memphian and really didn't know about the Highland Heights community growing up. If anything, we would we would go north of Summer Avenue to get a Jerry snow cone, but but there's such a hidden gem up here north of Summer that uh, I really hope that more people in Memphis uh, discover. Um, we have an amazing library at the Randolph Library. Um, our local schools are, are Kingsbury, uh, Treadwell. Uh, we have a collegiate school in Memphis. It's also in our area, and then Gramwood, uh, which is a great optional school program that's on the southeast of our area down here. Uh, My neighbors are um, uh, very diverse uh, in ethnicity and race. Uh, We have an amazing uh, new population of new neighbors that have moved into the community in the last uh, decade um, from Latin American countries, um, from uh, the Middle East, from Africa, um, just all over, which makes a great melting pot. We we definitely are one of the most diverse neighborhoods in Memphis because of that, and that comes with a lot of uh, a lot of great things. We have incredible uh, food along Summer Avenue. Everyone loves the the taco trucks and uh, the diverse food that we have around there. Um, so that's a really positive thing. And if you get a little bit deeper into the neighborhood uh, along Macon, uh, there's some other great taco uh, trucks and things like that, um, and a panderia, which is really great, a, a Mexican bakery. Um, that has some of the best stuff in Memphis. So I think that's part of it. I mean, you would say probably if you looked at the demographics, our community, 30% um, would, would probably be Latino. Um, and then you have around uh, 50% um, to 60% African-American. And then um, we have uh, the remainder being a mixture of uh, white, Caucasian, and then uh, other ethnic groups. Well, I've spent time in the Heights, and I do associate it with really great food, not only along summer, but as you said, um, there's a Honduran restaurant there that I've been to, the Panaderia I have been to many times, 
and uh, really an, an interesting enclave of all different kinds of food. So, Jared, um, your organization works in the Heights, and uh, you're a community development corporation. I know working on a variety of revitalization activities. So, tell us about the Heights CDC, how it got started, and then um, what your you know what your mission is, and then what some of your um, fundamental programs are. I guess. Yes, absolutely. The I've been with the Heights Community Development Corporation for about six years now, and we had some help getting started from our neighbors to the south in Binghampton, the Binghampton Development Corporation, where Robert Montague was the director at the time, and now Noah Gray, who's a a great friend, and um, just a peer in the work. And uh, because of help from BDC, the Binghampton Development Corporation, we were able to uh, build our capacity as a, a smaller community development corporation to the north. And we can't, you know, we would not be where we are today as an organization without their support and help. Um, so our focus is on, on housing um, and uh, building relationships is really at the core of what we do. So even though we are rehabbing blighted properties in our neighborhood, uh, which there are many blighted properties, over 1,100, um, our, our focus is really about uh, people as well and uh, the, building those relationships with our neighbors um, because I think housing is important, um, but if if families aren't given opportunity towards home ownership, which is something we focus on and work on as well, partnering with Fraser CDC and United Housing, some other great organizations, um, that's um, that's important to us. So uh, the way that we approach the work um, in, a, in a holistic way, we have three H's that kind of encapsulate what we do. You know, H being housing, uh, one of them uh, where we buy and rehab blighted properties using grant funds from the city and state, uh, and then also just gifts from the community. Uh, people who feel called to see Memphis look a lot different, see the heights look different uh, with our housing. And then uh, once we rehab those houses, we uh, rent them uh, for affordable housing for families in our neighborhood. Um, and the other H is uh, um, hope. So bringing hope to the community through relationship building and finding ways that we can um, support our leaders that are already here in the neighborhood. And then the last one is uh, the H is holistic community development. And what that looks like is improving spaces in our neighborhood, like green spaces, parks, uh, libraries, schools, places where uh, we've seen disinvestment over the years and finding ways for residents to be the leaders in reinvesting in the neighborhood. Well, and I want to talk a little bit about the a, a big green space initiative you have uh, in a minute. But um, first of all, tell me a little bit about how your neighborhood has and, and the people that live there have been impacted by COVID. Yes, this has really been a tough year um, for our neighbors uh, in regards to being able to keep and maintain um, employment. Uh, that's been a big issue. Also, uh, that leads into not being able to pay utility and rent. So early on, we started a COVID relief fund, again, t- taking uh, some lead from the lead from BDC, who also started a fund, a neighborhood fund, so neighbors could help each other out. That's always a hard part, too, is like you, you see that maybe a family is struggling, um, but you, you, you know, you may not get you may not know them really well. Uh, opportunity for neighbors to help each other and then also for resources to be put into the community to help alleviate, um, you know, the burden of, of utility costs and rent right now. So uh, we've also partnered with uh, MIFA as well. When our funds were depleted by August, um, that's that's been an issue, like is to be able to find other resources or, that are out there. Um, our, our residents are, are so... Um, neighbors resilient i think that's been the beauty of all this is like we've seen resiliency in people who have come together and helped neighbors out and um, also just finding ways to find you know to have a positive outlook on what's happening as tough as that can be sometimes so uh, one of the residents suggested doing a yard of the month right so let's put some signs up and give out lowe's gift cards to a few families who have maintained their yards and, and have some pride in their community um, and then we've also started doing, uh, because of COVID, it's been really hard because we're not meeting um, 
our, our neighborhood loves block parties and loves getting together. Well, we, we can't really do that. So we've been doing a neighborhood newsletter and we mail that out uh, to uh, around 4,000 households uh, in our area every other month. And uh, so we've been thankful to the Community Foundation in Memphis for helping us with that and um, being able to provide that. So there's a way we can communicate. Uh, that newsletter is in English and Spanish. Um, but so we, we've had to adapt as, a, as an organization, but our, our neighborhood has adapted as well uh, to try to, to help each other out. Well, last week I had um, Webb Brewer and another attorney named Constance Brown talk about um, Neighborhood Preservation Inc.'s a, a program they're leading up that help, is helping to prevent um, evictions. And they negotiate between a tenant and a landlord for reduced rent. Uh, one of the things that Im- Im- impressed me favorably about that was that um, – you know, it helps landlords as well as tenants because there are a lot of small landlords, but that kind of raises the question. I mean, you're a landlord. That's and, right. and so how has, um, and of course you, I mean, nonprofits also have to pay the light bill and pay the phone bill. And it's not all about charity, especially in the community development world where you're really running a nonprofit real estate organization. So how has, um, how has that impacted you? Have your tenants been able to continue paying rent and has it affected the organization negatively? I know you don't, you're, you know, not in a position to want to put people out, but, but like I said, you still need to sustain the high CDC. Yes. I mean, we, we definitely have had, um, trouble with some tenants who have not been able to make. And the, the thing that sets us apart from other developers um, is that we uh, have relationships, stronger relationships with our tenants. So we, we can ask them questions about how their employment's going and, and from there be able to tell, you know, are they, are they doing all right? And, and if they're going to be late or if they need help with utility um, for them to let us know, there's not a, there's not that burden of shame there. Um, it's just the reality. We're all in this together. We have a, a saying in our neighborhood. I don't want to miss opportunity to share it with people who are listening um, that may not know about the Heights community, but we say we rise by lifting others and that we carry that into our work um, in every facet so that the people who have struggled, some of our tenants who have struggled, like they, they know, like they can, they can admit that and talk to us about it. the fortunate thing is that, you know, Paul Young, and, and who's also been part of that work of trying to help uh, alleviate uh, the evictions that are coming. Um, others are, are doing a lot of work to bring resources. So the Height CDC has been able to receive some of those resources to offset the, the loss that we've had. Community Lift has also done that as well and has offered up CD, for CDC specifically, um, who have tenants who have not been able to make payments uh, to make sure that we're, we're whole at the end of the year. So. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to Jared Myers, who's the executive director of the Heights CDC. And we're doing our first neighborhood spotlight on the Heights neighborhood. Okay, Jared. So let's do a little more of a deep dive into a couple projects that are happening in the Heights right now. And the first one I want to start with is the Heights Lime Project, which um, is near and dear to my heart, having spent some time over there. So tell us about what the Heights Line is, a little bit of the history, and then what's happening on that now, because it's a pretty good sized project. Yes, the Heights Line Project is a resident led project uh, where we have reimagined the use of National Street. Uh, National Street used to be a dividing line of our neighborhood uh, where it was redlined uh, on the west side of National. Uh, African Americans could buy houses, but they could not on the east side. And we have uh, also, you know, looked into the history of the streetcar network in Memphis, where the streetcars ran down National Street out to the Raleigh Springs Mall. Uh, back in the 1920s. And we have uh, really just worked as a community to reimagine what it would look like uh, for our community to have a linear park uh, that would 
connect uh, an anchor in our community, the, the intersection at National and Summer, uh, connect our community uh, with a linear park to the Wolf River Greenway and the Shelby Farms Green Line. Um, this is a, a, a 2.1-mile uh, project uh, that would expand the median uh, from 15 feet to 35 feet and, and give a 12-foot mixed-use path down the middle of the median, uh, creating this linear park with a lot of amenities along the way. So the project is currently under review uh, at City Engineering. So we have completed 100% of our construction documents. Uh, we are thankful for that in our partnership with our architect, Alta Planning and Design. Um, a good friend, Daniel Ashworth, who no longer lives in Memphis, was a big part of this project uh, from its inception. Uh, and we, uh, at, through the planning process, we also did a, uh, we also did a, a demonstration project for a month where we were able to uh, create a heights line for one block of National Street. Uh, and that was a lot of fun for us. It gave the neighborhood an opportunity to test out some ideas and to really just see if this is something that our, our neighborhood would embrace. Uh, and then we had a, 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 so much success with that that we started to move forward. And um, now we're in this space now of getting the approval from the city to implement uh, and working on uh, getting the city and county to buy in, right, for them to have a stake in the game uh, so that we can build this project out. It, it's going to cost around $7 million. Uh, our organization has already raised a million in pre-development costs. So uh, now we're going to the city and the county to ask for capital improvement dollars uh, for this project for our neighborhood. So one of the things I've observed about National, and I know this isn't news to you, is that uh, cars really drive fast on it. And that seems to be a barrier to, you know, potentially, you know, feeling comfortable on the park and also sort of activating the some of the commercial buildings are along there. Are there any opportunities to slow the traffic down as part of this plan? Yes, absolutely. And unfortunately, Memphis has seen a, a high rise in uh, traffic violence. Um, and I think I use that term as something I learned this year, traffic violence of uh, pedestrians being injured by vehicles. And uh, October of this year is, is you know Pedestrian Awareness Month. And uh, our bike ped coordinator at the city, Nick Euler, has done a really good job in trying to help bring awareness to traffic violence. And National Street and the Heights Line project is a project that is geared towards safety. When we did the demonstration project, we noticed a reduction of 15 miles per hour in vehicles that were traveling around the demonstration at that block that we were able to narrow. So um, absolutely, that's that's a big part of the project as well, is, is it makes it safer for students who live on the west side of National to go to school at Treadwell, that there you know, are over 190 students that have to walk across this 92 foot wide street. And I think that um, we are doing our best to, to make our, our streets safer all around, not just National Street, um, but Summer Avenue, Highland, Macon, the main thoroughfares where people in our community are walking or riding their bikes. One of the things that's I think is very cool about the Heights line, and you sort of alluded to this, um, you know, in the in the sort of transportation arena, certainly the active transportation arena, meaning, you know, facilities for non-car transportation, um, there's a big premium placed on connectivity. And what that means really is just at different segments, you know, whether they're, you know, bike lanes and sidewalks or um, greenways, they connect up so you can, you know, travel safely a longer distance using these alternative transportation routes. And one of the cool things about the High Line, which you mentioned, is that um, not only will it connect to the Wolf River Greenway on the north, but it also connects up to Broad Avenue, which leads to the Heights, the Hamp Line, and then to Shelby Farms Greenway. So it becomes really part of a network um, for people I mean, for recreation, but also for people that are traveling to work. Yes, Emily, that's a really good point because we have really uh, early on to get approval for this project to be incorporated into the Mid-South Green print was an early on goal of ours. 
because we know that um, many people drive past the Heights neighborhoods and they never, they never knew they passed us. And uh, we're, we're in between two heavily automotive uh, commercial corridors of summer in Jackson. And uh, we just needed a connector and that connectivity and walkability are huge uh, benefits, but there's an economic benefit and there's also the health benefit. I mean, we're going to be planting 280 trees. And during this time of COVID, um, the pre-existing conditions that plague our neighborhood uh, can be addressed with access to green space or for people to be able to get outside and walk and to recreate and to ride their bikes and to take their families out. I think that that is the, the, the selling factor for us when we're going to raise the support for this project is that it will create jobs and it will also address health issues that we're having so that, you know, when we have these pre-existing conditions come up that, that you know, when you have a pandemic, those are the things that are really hurting our neighborhood. So I think that we, we, we know that this is a healthy project. It's a street safe project and it's an economic project. I mean, it will increase, um, you know, uh, values of properties in our community. And part of that too is it, the high time has really taught us a lot about um, gentrification and displacement, right? Green space projects and um, in general, like they, they, they have a tendency to have this stigma about them where they could displace people. Well, we've really been focusing on uh, banking land and securing affordability for our neighborhood so that when the green, the high sign is successful, uh, we, we don't displace our residents that are here. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. You make a couple of very important points. First of all, that that although there is a lot of, um, you know, people feel like these kind of community amenities sometimes do bring the threat of gentrification and displacement. But you mentioned, first of all, that there's a lot of community benefits, um, health and safety being just two of them in addition that, that, that aren't often mentioned in the same breath as economic benefits. Uh, so that's important, but also that there are things that organizations like yours can do to sort of mitigate future threats um, by banking land. And I just love it that the CDC is taking that really, you know, from the ground up grassroots approach to make sure that not only does does it benefit the community, but that any threats to the community are managed in advance to the best to the best way possible. So kudos to you and you know your whole team for that. Well, I appreciate you saying that. It makes me think too of just the the new uh, story that you may have seen about the rezoning of Summer Avenue, right? And the, the economic developments that are happening around there. Because um, if, if you don't know, maybe Emily can share about the rezoning story that's that's come up. Well, I wanted to, uh, that was my next question. Actually, I want to move a, you know transition from the Heights line to talk about Summer Avenue, my favorite street in Memphis, um, and uh, yes, the small the, the 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 small area plan you're talking about. Maybe um, talk about. It sounds like the church. Uh, that's threatened was a little bit of a trigger for some of this work, if I understand it correctly. So maybe start from there and um, talk about what's happening um, to try to, you know, preserve some of Summer Avenue's physical um, character. Yes, absolutely. You're right. The There is a church, Holland Heights United Methodist Church, uh, at the corner of Summer and the north northwest Cumber northwest corner of summer and highland and uh, it's a historical church that was uh, built in the 1950s um, but the congregation is over 106 years old um, the congregation um, left that church building um, so it's been vacant uh, for about a year now and the congregation or the the united methodist church conference um, sold the building uh, to a gas station developer and that has been uh, a project that Christina Crutchfield, who's our community coordinator, has been a, a great leader on and, and getting people to advocate for the preservation of this historical building that has so much beauty and is an anchor in our community. Uh, and it has been a, a, a place where people have come to get assistance with food and, and clothing and uh, spiritual and mental health. There have been 
Um, and it's been definitely been felt there at that corner, that void. So uh, when the developer uh, who purchased the building made it known that he was going to build a gas station and our neighborhood, you know, uh, advocated, um, you know, that that wouldn't happen. Um, Chase Carlisle uh, from city council came and put in a moratorium uh, with the Memphis city council to uh, not allow the demolition uh, of this historical building, which we're really thankful that he chose to do that. Uh, and then it kind of, you know, it, it started this ball moving, right, of of people talking about the importance of Summer Avenue and what, what you know, what are we going to do? Like, we can't neglect this great asset of a street in our city that has so much historical relevance. It's a state highway. Um, but over the years, it's been neglected from policy and zoning where, we have a lot of predatory lenders on the street. We have a lot of pawn shops and car dealerships and uh, ammunition and gun sales. So how can we uh, move the opposite direction? How can we uh, put some things in place where we're going to have positive businesses amenities along Summer Avenue again? So um, there's a small area plan and we're doing that in conjunction uh, with our equitable development plan. Uh, so that allows us to look at how can we redesign specifically this area of summer between uh, Highland and Holmes uh, near the, the the anchor of National and Summer, which is a the only catalytic um, the only accelerant anchor in in Memphis 3.0 uh, for our neighborhood for the Jackson District. So uh, I'm really excited to see that rezoning uh, kind of come into play. So. Um- you know, I've got a I've got a um, a jargon bell that I ring um, when something oh. needs to be explained, and um, so I was just wondering if we could digress for a second, and because you mentioned that Summer and National was the only accelerant anchor in in your neighborhood in the Memphis 3.0 plan, which is the city's recently adopted comprehensive plan. So just tell people what an accelerant anchor is um, and why it's important to your small area planning. Yes, and I'm thankful that uh, we have two other planners uh, on staff. I'm not a planner, you know, through education or by nature, um, but learning that Accelerant Anchor is ex- extremely important for a community uh, where we can leverage that to get city investment back into uh, the public amenities of the anchor uh, and the, the design of it uh, to attract uh density uh, and reinvestment to the community. So it is an anchor that um, with re- a little bit of reinvestment would would give the, the most return. Um, so the, the businesses, it's a mixed use, mixed use district as well. So we have houses um, alongside businesses, which is also really nice. Uh, we have a post office. We have anchors like the Highland Heights Baptist Church. Uh, there's a fire station near there as well. Uh, and the old June Lee uh, buildings are still there. There's very wide sidewalks. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a desirable piece of Memphis um, that, that needs uh, opportunity for revitalization. So once the small area plan, the idea is to get that conceived and then get that adopted and then to try to steer some investment. Yes, that's right. Uh, I think that once we complete the small area plan in conjunction with our equitable development plan, uh, so that when we do have that reinvestment, it's it's for the neighbors who are here now and uh, will attract new residents uh, in a way that, that, that we don't displace folks. So uh, attracting investors to the community is kind of like, it comes with challenges, right? You, you have to be able to share what you want from your neighborhood, uh, but also what's feasible with the market uh, at its current place now. And then having a projection of what is the market going to be able to sustain moving forward as the neighborhood comes back uh, to, you know, and we see see the houses that are vacant become occupied again. And I think that that's, that's where, where it's important to have community voice. It's important to have a plan in place so that, um, you know, investors aren't always the ones who get to determine the identity and the uh, feel of the neighborhood, but it can be determined by um, by the people who live there and also some of the businesses that have uh, remained on Summer Avenue. We have a great Summer Avenue Merchants Association uh, with many longtime businesses that have really struggled through COVID. So I think that's part of the plan as well is, is like to make sure that we don't lose those that have 
had to close temporarily, uh, like Bryant's Breakfast or others, uh, for them to be able to to come back and to to make Summer Avenue keep for us to be able to keep that that feeling of the street. Has there been any uh, visioning as part of this process or in the community about what residents would like to see at the southwest corner of Summer and National, where that blighted building was torn down? No, unfortunately, we haven't been able to um, get input, resident input for that yet. I think that, you know, it was really hard to watch that building uh, being um, demolished because it still had a lot of life left in it. And uh, we, we don't necessarily have a, a, you know, input. I think something along the lines of a mixed use building where there's, you know, a loft apartments at the top with retail mixed use at the bottom uh, would make the most sense that falls in line with uh, Memphis 3.0 and, and falls in line with, um, I think what our residents want to see is just reinvested buildings uh, at that corner. I'm happy to hear you say that because I also was unhappy when that building was torn down. And, you know, there's a tension between, um, you know, community members desire to have blighted structures eliminated, which I totally understand that was um, that building was, you know, boarded up and dilapidated for years, if not decades but it also had a lot of character. It was pulled up to the street and um, was just, I was disappointed. I understood why it was torn down, but I was disappointed. Yeah. And that's, that's an unfortunate thing about, um, about the work we do is that there is this tension of people who want to preserve uh, the history and, and those who just don't want to look at the eyesore anymore. They feel that it's unsafe. The hard part too, is that there's, there needs to be an education around when you do tear those buildings down, they cannot be built back the same way. And that's that's what's really difficult is that we we will not be able to build um, a, a building that's right up to the street again, right? Because of code and the MPO. So that's that's hard for us to accept. But there are some things that we can do, maybe with landscaping and a, and a, a great architect or designer who can help us um, with that. So um, there there are a lot of positive things that have happened this year, as much as it's been tough with Summer Avenue. And, um, you know, with the church being sold, and uh, but this rezoning, the small area plan, the equitable development plan, uh, are some positives that we we take away from this year and look forward to next year. Another one is you know, My City Rides, which is a nonprofit uh, that does uh, scooters in the city. Um, they they train people uh, on how to ride scooters safely, and um, they have a great model uh, for transportation. And we're excited to see them invest uh, in Summer Avenue and kind of plant their uh, plant their heels in the ground over here too. Yeah, that's a wonderful organization. I'd love to have them on Memphis Metropolis at some point because transportation obviously is um, one of the subjects that I like to talk to people about. So Jared, this has been great. It's a great discussion. I love what you're doing uh, in the Heights. So I've been talking to Jared Myers, who's the executive director of the Heights CDC. We've been talking all about the Heights neighborhood, the organization Jared leads, and some of their recent initiatives like the Heights Line and the small area planning for Summer Avenue. And Jared, thank you so much for coming on Memphis Metropolis. Well, thank you for having me, Emily. It's good to talk to you again. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR. 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is Emily Trenum. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm joined by Ray Brown, who's an urban designer here in Memphis, the interim director of the Downtown Memphis Commission, and one of our regular commentators. So welcome back, Ray. Thanks, Emily. It's good to be here. So, Ray, earlier in the show, um, I had on Jared Myers from the Heights. Um, I'm starting a new series of neighborhood spotlights. And of course, I'm very familiar with Jared and his work. So it seemed like a great place to start. It's just a, it's, it's a, an interesting neighborhood. And as he mentioned, 
you know, demographically very diverse people from a lot of different countries, um, great, great international restaurants. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the, we talked about um, sort of two separate initiatives that are really joined. One is the Heights Line, um, which is a uh, an active transportation corridor that's going to run along National from summer up into uh, connect with the Wolf River Greenway. And then at summer, there's um, they've done a small, they're doing a small area plan, just sort of get a little more control over that area. So let's talk about that first. I was, um, I was, I mean, it, the Heights Line is, I think, a, a wonderful project. I love that it picks up on the history of this, used to be the streetcar. I, I'm a sucker for that kind of story from the past um, when we had streetcars. And, um, and, but I was impressed that they, they have a holistic approach to it, really looking at all the different benefits, um, economic health, safety, but also that they're, you know, thinking about the future, what it's going to be like when it's done and trying to, if there are any threats of, of, um, gentrification or displacement, kind of trying to get ahead of it and think about how residents can really benefit from it. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's um, all very admirable. It's easy to do projects piecemeal and to um, not really think about the potential downside of an improvement project, especially one that affects such a large number of people in such a large area, um, it's neighborhoods are tricky. And uh, what benefits one person might be a problem with some, for someone else. For example, if you do a big uh, public improvement project like the Heights Line, and it's a huge success, and people begin to want to move to the area to take advantage of that improvement, uh, property taxes, prices go up, property taxes go up, and people who can no longer afford to pay those property taxes may be forced out of their homes. Um, and perhaps the home is not of sufficient value to allow them to buy another home in a comparable area. So that's the danger of gentrification. Now, uh, the fact that uh, the Heights CDC is trying to get out ahead of that and work with the neighbors and make sure that that does not happen, uh, I think is extremely admirable. It's a difficult thing for them to do, to take on, but uh, because they have started to do it from the front end, uh, it will be a lot easier than it would be if they didn't do it and waited till the project was complete. Well, and it's how do you get, how do you, get to the sort of the balance, I guess, one of the things about the Heights is there's a lot of blighted homes. Some of them are boarded up. I mean, you hope that the Heights line will help fill those in. So there won't be 1,100 blighted structures in the neighborhood anymore. But how do you do that without tipping over into the scenario that you described? (laughs) Well, it's not easy. And, uh, you know, that also opens up a whole different topic that Memphis struggles with, which is the number of absentee owners of those vacant and boarded up houses that we have here in Memphis, that we suffer from here in Memphis. People who may own a house who live in, in one case I just heard about the other day, Japan. So it's difficult to, uh, that's a whole separate subject, but it's tied into the notion of improving an area, whether it's a park or a street or whatever it is, in a neighborhood that begins to generate desire for folks to move into that neighborhood. But then you've got to figure how you're going to get that property out of the hands of somebody who may not want to give it up. Well, you know, the, the absentee landlords and out-of-town investors has been a theme through a number of the shows that we have done just in our brief a couple of months on the air. Two weeks ago, I had, I think it was two weeks ago, I had a show on Black home ownership with um, Amy Schalfine from United Housing and the executive director of NARAB. And the 
that's a barrier to homeownership. Uh, those houses, when they change hands, don't even go on the market. And a lot of neighborhoods, there's so many. How do you inch up the homeownership rate when there's so many? All that to say, I completely agree. And that's just um, that that issue affects so many other tangents in the community development neighborhood revitalization arena. Yeah. So let's talk, let's, let's talk about Summer Avenue. I want to, one of the things Jared and I talked about was how the Heights United Methodist Church sort of uh, instigated this desire to do a small area plan for summer. Talk about um, what the opportunities are to, you know, to stabilize, improve that little corner, that little area of summer. I think of you as someone who is very interested in nodes and has done a lot of designing around, since I've known you around nodes and commercial strips. So surely you must have some thoughts about that area of summer and how they can preserve its character. And then also it sounds like they, they're concerned about the land uses and wanting to have more desirable land uses. Yeah, it's clear that, that they are. And um, a couple of different factors are at play here. One is that every good neighborhood has a downtown, uh, its own little downtown, where you can hopefully at least walk to get a quarter milk when you need one or uh, have a cup of coffee when you want to just sit down and read a newspaper. Every thriving neighborhood has a center. And to me, that's what this small area plan aims to create in that section of Summer Avenue. And one of the reasons they are doing it is to consciously keep out those automobile-oriented uses like service stations and used car lots that have so proliferated along summer in Jackson and all of the other corridors uh, in disinvested neighborhoods that that suffer from um, from those kinds of uses. And so it's important to be able to create, uh, set aside a specific area designated as the the center, the the central business district of the, the neighborhood, and create the mix of uses and the amount of density that make it work for the neighborhood. So I'm, I'm all for what they're doing. I, I would like to see a lot more of those small area plans going on throughout the city. And I know of a couple you know, that I've participated in, um, in the Klondike Smoky City area that are in the works of being planned um, that, those are the things that uh, a revitalized neighborhood uh, can can it will draw people, draw interest to the neighborhood, draw potential residents to the neighborhood. That's how we build up the city. That's, I, that's a good investment. I agree with all of that, and I, I hope once the plan is done, some resources can be deployed to, you know, help do some implementation. I think that's the the intent anyway, when those small area plans are developed. I mean, one of the things, and Jared and I talked about this for a minute that I really see on Summer Avenue is, um, and I, tr- I feel like I don't want to, you know, impose my sort of, you know, midtown values on other people, but you've definitely over the last few years seen the eradication of blight and then sometimes what's come in to replace it is um, not urban design. Like when the um, the flea market building was Bojo Antique Mall, which I frequented, was torn down and it was replaced by a family dollar. And that it could very well be that the family dollar serves the neighborhood more and also the Bojo building, although it was occupied, was, you know, held together with twine and tape. So, but sometimes, Jared and I talked about this because of the building that was at National and Summer um, on the southwest corner, which was an old bar or t-shirt shop or something, a cool looking urban building, but not in very good shape. And the community just wanted it gone. Mm -hmm. And I saw it celebrated on social media that when it was taken down, and I was like, dang, 
I like that old building. I wish it could have been saved. So how, in your mind, how do you sort of resolve that tension um, when something, people want something new? They see it as economic development and it's good, but something else is that has more character might be lost in the process. Well, that's part of the reason for doing a small area plan is that you build support uh, and you can also sometimes put into place restrictions on the reuse of the land, especially if you, especially through uh, zoning restrictions or um, uh, that's the, the, the kind of uh, regulation that zoning represents. You can put restrictions in place that move toward urban type solutions, which is to say buildings on the street as opposed to behind a sea of asphalt. It's to say uh, buildings that are more than one story, preferably, uh, that, that in front the street. It, uh, and then you, you build incentives for developers to build that sort of building as opposed to a service station or, or whatever. And mind you, it's possible to build a service station to the street with the pumps behind. Uh, or, a, or a family dollar. Or a family I mean, there's, dollar. There's one on Highland. Um, and I think that's perfect. I, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, that that the, the, the look and feel and the placement of a building is more important to me than the use within with, with some yeah, some yeah. reservations, but I think that's the you know the you have to have um, some regulations. You have to have some design standards built into this plan, and you have to have community buy-in that says no, we're not going to accept anything else. And if somebody wants to come to land use control board and say we want to put a typical service station on this corner, then the community shows up in force and says no, you're not going to do that. I mean those the, you you the the plan. If done well, uh, and if done with community support, which is what I heard Jared saying uh, is the case, that will go a long way towards preventing um, bad design and encouraging good design. And I agree with you. It's less of, I mean, as long as the building has a reasonable amount of character, and as long as the building doesn't have a big blank wall on the sidewalk, but has windows and, and storefront displays, it doesn't. It, it's less important what the specific design is, and more important how it impacts the space around it, and how it impacts the, the people who walk by it. Okay, so I want to change the subject, um, Ray. But before we do that, I just want to remind people if they're just tuning in, they're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR ninety one point seven FM, and. We're talking to Ray Brown, who's an urban designer and one of our regular commentators. So, so Ray, let's when I don't know if it was last time you were on, but a couple of weeks ago you were on, and we talked about some changes to the Unified Development Code, and specifically one of them um, had to do with making it easier to to subdivide some odd shaped lots, which you find in Midtown, and um, a number of activists in the community were against that because the fear is that we're going to have more so-called tall skinnies, which are basically two very tall houses on a, on a, which was a single lot. We've got a few of those in Midtown and of course, Nashville, the urban neighborhoods of Nashville are full of them. And I think people are worried about them and felt like this unified development code change threatened that. And, I got some pushback on that from from our discussion, and part and I so I wanted just to revisit that. I think part of the because it, it made me reflect a little bit on, you know, the Memphis three comprehensive plan. You know, one of the themes of that is build up, not out, increase density, and part of density is filling in empty spaces in our urban neighborhoods. And I am 100% in favor of that. And I think the, the, you know, city and county government would like to put more, propose more unified development code changes that are going to, you know, promote infill, increase walkability. 
but they're, you know, afraid of pushback from the community, as we saw from this one little change. And I guess my question to you is, what's the, what's besides design standards, like, what's the balance? How do we get, you know, community support for, um, for changes that are going to bring density? How do we get community support from them, but still preserve the, you know, the, the character of the neighborhood and people are, are afraid of change sometimes. I think that's part of it. Anyway, I'm rambling as usual, but I know you have thoughts on this. There are a lot of ways to approach increasing density. I think what, what I have seen of the, some of the, and I'm, by no means all, but some of the tall skinnies that have been built at so-called tall skinnies that have been built is that they're, design and character is incompatible with the historic neighborhoods in which they've been placed. Um, there are others that work quite well. There's a set of houses that were built um, actually some time ago, maybe almost a couple of decades ago now, right next to, on Peabody, right next to what is now the Slider Inn. Um, and over time, when they first came into being, people thought, oh, this is horrible. But when they, over time, the vegetation has grown up, the houses have gotten a little bit worn, and now you don't really notice them anymore. However, there are others that have been built, particularly in Cooper Young, um, that are totally out of character. They're too high. They're too, they, have, they have garage doors on the front. They have no front porches. They're totally out of character with what a Cooper Young house uh, should, well, I, I won't say should be, but is um, for the most part. And so, again, and one other example I'm going to cite is Harbortown. Uh, there are a lot of tall, skinny houses in Harbortown, but, but they work because there are some controls to uh, how much uh, fenestration they have, uh, whether they, they must have a porch, they must um, meet the street in a particular way. And, of course, you can do all of that. The Harbortown developers could do all of that because it's basically private property. But it's difficult, different when you're operating on a public street in a public neighborhood. And so all of that is to say that it depends on how you do it. It's not whether it should be done or why it should be done, but how it should be done. Uh, another solution that I think would make more sense than the tall skinnies is to do go ahead and attach those houses to each other and make a row of townhouses, uh, but do them in a way that uh, is compatible with uh, a an urban streetscape. And in fact, you can see examples of that in the newer parts of Uptown, uh, where the houses look like one building that's been divided into units. They each have a front door, they each have a front porch, and it's quite lovely. Another way to do it is what's called a mansion uh, building, where it looks like a very big house. And there may be a door on one side, there may be a door on the front, there may be, but there are several units inside what is otherwise one very large house. And a third way to do it is what one sees periodically in Memphis, but not very often, not often enough in my view, is the missing middle piece. And, and the, by that I mean not a single family house and not a, a large multifamily apartment building but a small apartment building that might have two units on the ground floor and two units on the second floor, but has one door that goes into a central stair that leads to internally to those four units. And the outside, again, looks more or less like a large house, a large single-family house. Uh, you see a lot of those in Midtown. And so there are a lot of ways to do it that don't involve creating something that's out of character with its surroundings. I think the biggest problem with the tall skinnies is that they are out of, uh, they're inconsistent with their surroundings. They're too tall. They're, they, they don't treat their uh, fronts 
in an urban way, and um, they they just seem to stand out to to people who are concerned about the overall appearance of the neighborhood, which they should be. Well, I agree with you. It just doesn't seem like Memphis is a city that it, that where architectural standards are going to be accepted. Um, I think all of the design solutions you have proposed are excellent. Um, but certainly in terms of Cooper Young, there it was a struggle to get the community to build consensus around a landmarks district. And um, just as like I said, it doesn't seem like for economic and just cultural reasons that that there would be design requirements attached to these places. I, I mean, I'm just not seeing us go in there as much as I would like to see that. That's my only hesitation. Well, what about getting the community? Well, let, me, let me stop you for a minute. Okay. There, there are conversations going on in the community, and they're early, and they're and I'm, I really <clears throat> haven't been part of it, so I can't comment too specifically. But I know that there are conversations going on um, that would lead to design guidelines um, for fairly sizable areas of the city, and it, it, it's in its infancy that that movement is in its infancy, but it is going on. And so I would say not never, but I would say that it takes time to build consensus around the idea of design guidelines. And I'm saying guidelines, not standards, because standards are law, guidelines are suggestions, but but they can be coupled, guidelines can be coupled with incentives to make it useful for a developer to follow them. I, 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 that's great news that that's on the table. And I do feel like if there were design guidelines that some of the, some of these, you know, other proposed future changes to the unified development code might potentially be a little more palatable to community members if they knew there was other protections in the system for them, um, so that's in- that's interesting. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time. I had a lot of other things I wanted to talk to you about, so you'll have to come back. I did want to just end um, briefly to um, acknowledge the death of Marty Gorman, who's a very well-known local architect who passed away this week, known for um, his partnership with Walk Jones and Francis Ma, and was really a leader in the in the architectural world for many years. I know him from volunteering at Memphis Heritage, and also he collaborated on a book that I loved several years ago, um, which was a survey of modern public buildings. And you know, Memphis is—I feel like we love the old stuff, and there's not as much of an appreciation of the modern architecture. That's changing, but. Um, but that was really his, that was his era. And so just was a loss to the community. Felt like we've, we're losing, we've lost several people lately. And um, anything you want to add to that? I just really br- very briefly summarized, you know, his career. Not, no, I didn't do it justice at all. Well, Marty was, uh, Marty was a, a, a terrific guy and he, uh, he was a great advocate for the city. He was a great advocate for good design. He was a great advocate for uh, and, and and educating people about the value of good design. Uh, and he was a modernist, which I have to admit I am too. It was we both came up in the same era of education and uh, and having an appreciation for modernism. Um, and uh, he he was not a stark architect. He was one of the guys who makes things happen, uh, and, and he so therefore he was not in the public eye a lot. But he was uh, he was an important contributor to the built environment in Memphis, and and a just an, a very very nice person on top of it. Yes, I've been talking to Ray Brown, who's an urban designer, and we ran out of time to talk about the Highland Heights United Methodist Church and. The issue of churches in general, which is a big one I want to revisit. So uh, thank you, Ray, and I will look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Emily. 
You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.